refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. I'm Serge Antonin. Black and White and Thin Blue Lines is an original podcast co-created by Clark Ollers and me. The podcast is a conversation between two former police officers, one African-American and one Caucasian. We discuss police practices. We talk about criminal justice controversies. We have occasional guests who bring other perspectives to the dialogue. We hope that the podcast will persuade you to become informed about and active in influencing justice policies in America. But life is never easy. There's work to be done and obligations to be met, obligations to truth, to justice, and to liberty. Our topic today concerns injuries and deaths suffered by Americans struck by bullets not even intended for them, the so-called innocent bystanders. Now, Serge and I hesitate to use the word innocent bystander because it implies that the intended target or targets of shooters are not innocent, and we intend no such implication. The vast, vast majority of shooting victims in the United States are the victims of a murder or attempted murder, an unjustified shooting. Obviously, there are a small number of persons who die or are injured by justified shootings. Now, Serge, I consider this the new normal, uh, meaning a previously rare or atypical situation has become commonplace. I think it's so commonplace that at least I'm becoming numb to the number of incidents, including road rage incidents where children are being struck. Serge, what are your initial thoughts on this problem? Well, it it takes me to the largest city in America, New York City, and New York City's uh, Times Square, where the ball drops every year. We recently saw, the, the when I say the ball, I mean the New Year's Eve ball drops every year and they make a big deal. The fanfare is always captured on every TV network. Um, in Times Square recently, a young girl was hit by random gunfire in May. And then in June, a United States Marine by the name of Samuel Pullen, I believe I'm pronouncing it correctly. P O U L I N was struck by gunfire. Luckily, neither of the victims were killed, but that was definitely the potential. There was definitely the potential for for death or serious bodily injury. And obviously, when you think about this, it comes down to the number of bullets being sprayed around in in these urban areas. Now, I'm not going to say it doesn't occur in rural areas, but we hear a lot of this happening recently and becoming the norm in our urban areas and in large cities such as Chicago. And Chicago, let's say during one weekend in June, had 62 shootings. I mean, assuming three shots per shooting, and I think that's kind of lowballing it, especially with, with the weaponry being used nowadays, but assuming it's three shots per shooting, that's 186 bullets just whizzing around Chicago. Every bullet must stop somewhere, and I don't think people think of that. And I th- I once read somewhere that the 
average, let's say nine millimeter, the average range of the bullet is somewhere like 500 to 1,000 yards. Not effective range. You can't be accurate. But unless the bullet runs into something before gravity drops the bullet, we're talking about roughly 500 to 1,000 yards. But you don't have that kind of open area in these major cities. You have buildings, you have cars, and then you have lots of people. So this is something that's definitely sadly becoming the new norm in our major cities. Well, in fact, uh, June 29th of this year, uh, the day began with the story of Miss Michelle Jordan Cummings, the mother of a Naval Academy inductee. And Serge, I think we talked during the day about it. One of us called the other. And this poor woman was uh, sitting on the balcony of a hotel room, I believe, after midnight. Uh, She was there to watch her son be inducted sworn into the United States Naval Academy, which has to be one of the proudest moments of uh, any parent's life in America. Absolutely. And uh, she was there. Apparently, her son was a football player, and it was her intention to to, uh, find the other mothers who were going to be part of the social club of the parents of the football team and so forth. Happy event. And she was hit by stray gunfire in Annapolis and uh, killed. And then... Later that day, I didn't learn about it till the next day, but a man was leaving a restaurant with his wife in Washington, D.C., along 14th Street, where a lot of it's become a popular area of restaurants. Finally, we're post-pandemic and people are back in the restaurants. And uh, he was hit by a stray bullet and killed. Um, his name was Jeremy Black. Also, uh, these are tragic circumstances. And... Uh, what do you think our government's response has been? Or what, what, what did it used to be, Serge? Let's throw some uh, gun bans or, or laws at it to, to try to lull the people into thinking that they're really making a, a difference when it comes to this random gun violence and getting these guns off of the street. Well, after Reagan was shot in uh, Washington, D.C., gun laws tightened. Then we had about two decades leading up to now where gun laws were became somewhat more liberal and people had more access to guns. I think gun enforcement changed, though. Uh, the one that let, let's you brought up New York and Times Square. Uh, when Giuliani was mayor of New York, he instituted a very, in my mind, effective, but in many people's minds, and I'm I'm uh, at equipoise on it a perhaps racist policy involving stop and frisk. And, uh, you know, Serge, what do you think? You're familiar with Giuliani's, the New York Police Department, so I should call under Giuliani, their policy is stop and frisk. What's your first reaction as an African-American and as a former police officer? Well, one thing that is my theme on the show is that if all these laws were applied fairly across the board, most of them I'd have no problem with if all these policies and laws. But the thing that people have a problem with is that they are not. So on its face, the stop and frisk, especially in the face of all this gun violence, sounds like a really good idea. But if you're only using it the majority of the time against African-Americans and other black or brown people, Hispanics and such, 
then that's where the problem comes in. But I'll tell a little, a little anecdote. I have a, my wife and I are friends with a couple who are from New York and they're both, uh, they're Caribbean American, but they're, they're black people, you know? So we were out to dinner one night and we were just talking about gun violence. And this goes back a few years and how it's on the uptick again in New York city. And the wife said, I wouldn't say this in public, but while I do feel like Giuliani was probably a racist, his policies worked because she lived in New York City her whole life and saw the ebbs and flows of the the violence. So when you see that kind of thing and people have to acknowledge that certain policies are set in place for public safety, we just have to fight so that they're applied fairly. And oftentimes people give up the fight when they think they have enough. But the fight has to be something that's undertaken every day until you achieve your goal. You just can't forget once one case comes along and there's a supposed win and then you forget until the next case. So I feel like people don't take their responsibility to have input seriously enough. And it's their civic duty to say, hey, we want to check out the records. We want to make sure that things are being applied fairly. We would like to know what the policy is. We'd like to know when it's applied. And I think that when people see results and they feel like they have input, I think they'll feel empowered and not so tread upon. Well, Serge, let's talk about West Baltimore. Uh, If you were a police officer engaged in stop and frisk in West Baltimore, what would the race of those people you stopped and frisk predominantly be? Predominantly African-American. And why? Because the area is predominantly African-American. And as sad as it is to say, the statistics in Baltimore say that most of the shootings and the victims and the suspects are African-American. Well, the reason I'm asking you that is because I think that stereotyping, which is, I, I, I don't use the word stereotyping and racism as um, synonyms, but I think that you could do a Venn diagram and there's an intersection of the two circles. Absolutely. Between stereotyping and racism. But I think of stereotyping, or I'm going to use another phrase, statistical probability. Okay. If I was trying to stop. Uh, that sounds a little more socially reasonable. <laughs> well, I'm, right. It might it might be, although I'm not really trying to be socially reasonable. I'm going to challenge I got you. you. I got I'm you. going to challenge you on what I think one of the problems facing law enforcement is. If I was trying to find people illegally carrying handguns in Baltimore City, the first statistical probability that I would do is age. And the second is gender. And the third is uh, probably neighborhood. In other words, I would say the age is going to be 14 at the low end, around 14 at the low end, to 35 at the high end. Now, the people that are over 35, whatever their gender and race, carrying a gun in Baltimore, are more likely to be carrying it in self-defense, in my experience. In other words, cab drivers and things uh, people of that nature who just don't want to be victimized. 
And I'm probably less concerned as a cop with that carry, if you want to know the truth. As a civilian, I'm more, I'm less concerned with that carry until you talk about stray bullets, because no well, bullet has a name regardless of what gun it's coming out of. I, I get it, but I don't think there's going to be as many impulsive shootings from people that are carrying guns I solely agree. for self-defense. I agree. But now let's talk about, let's go to the stereotyping a little further, because I'm going gender, male, uh, age 14 to 35, and uh, neighborhood. Now, I say neighborhood. If I was in, I don't know that Baltimore has any real exclusively white neighborhoods anymore. It did when I was growing up in Baltimore. Maybe like Roland Park, parts of North Baltimore. Okay, well, let's talk about Roland Park. Personally, I would probably conduct very few stop and frisks in Roland Park. Uh, I wouldn't. I'd, I'd conduct at least 30 a week just to make it even. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. But what, we're, what you, our listeners may or may not know is Roland Park and a, a little uh, – I just, I don't know what the heck, I'll tell a little personal story. My grandfather is one of the architects for many of the homes in Roland Park. But Roland Park has an awful lot of beautiful homes, and that tends to be wealthier people. Do you do you agree, Serge? I do. And so the, the residents of Roland Park, if they're walking their little schnauzer uh, down the street with its uh, diamond uh, uh, collar, Maybe they have a gun on them. If they do, it's probably for self-defense. Probably some old war veteran who comes from money or something. Well, they're they're probably not trying to sling dope on the corner in Roland Park. And at least that's been my experience in Roland Park. Uh, I couldn't afford a house in Roland Park today. But uh, in other uh, places in Baltimore, uh, the neighborhoods that are predominantly black – I would think that statistically you're more likely to be, if you're frisking for guns, certainly there are a lot of white people driving into Baltimore, and that's well known by the police, and it's a common complaint of the city council, the mayor, and the police commissioner, and I think it's valid. In other words, that white people are bringing the crime problem to Baltimore because they come in to purchase their heroin and so forth. Do you think that's valid? I don't know if I'd say they're bringing the crime problem, but they're certainly coming to the party. Well, okay. What I mean is, they're contributing. To yeah, the contributing. That's a criminal. Good way to put it. They're contributing to the criminal problems of Baltimore City, because if there's a market, they're coming to the market to buy the drugs, and it wouldn't surprise me that a fair number of those people are armed. In other words, I would have no problem if I was a police officer and I saw somebody purchasing heroin in Baltimore. I'd have no problem frisking them whatsoever. Me neither. Because I'd believe, you know, they're in the game, so to speak. As you well know, Serge, a lot of people come in and buy kind of larger quantities of heroin, even from street dealers, because they then go to various uh, outlying counties. And West Carroll Virginia. County, excuse me? And West Virginia. Absolutely. absolutely, And sell it. Yep. So, um, so I, you know, I certainly would put them. But- but still, statistically, you're more likely, particularly because if you're an officer on foot, you're not going to be catching some of the people in cars. They're going to drive away from you. But the people that are standing on the corner selling drugs, and a lot of those guys call it a shop. And I'm sure you've heard that mm-hmm. expression, Serge. Mm-hmm. A shop for our listeners is a group of guys kind of working in a conspiracy on a drug corner to sell drugs. And typically, one person takes the money. One person provides the drug, and another person provides some sort of cover 
and the cover is twofold, security from the buyer and security from the police. And some individual or group runs the shop. Correct. And at le- it's my experience, having defended some of these cases, there's at least one gun on the corner. In other words, somebody has a gun somewhere to protect from rival drug gangs, to protect from somebody that's going to come up and rob them of their drugs. In fact, they have these guys called corner boys who whose job it is, whose job profession it is, they rob drug dealers, you know. So it's altogether a high-risk occupation, and many of these people are armed. <laughs> high-risk. I like it. You know, well, uh, you know, Baltimore, it, Baltimore's answer to the stop and frisk of Giuliani in New York was the uh, Gun Trace Task Force. And Giuliani in New York's uh, stop and frisk. And I Bal- believe that Bats brought the... Gun Trace Task Force, right. didn't he? Right. I think so, too. Yeah. But um, if I'm not mistaken, but my point is both statistically reduced violent crime. Absolutely. While it may have raised the robbery rate, but. Well, Serge <laughs> is saying the Gun Trace Task Force may have raised the robbery rate because the Gun Trace Task Force proved to be robbery. I didn't say that. Well, okay, I'll say it. <laughs> The Gun Trace Task Force was engaged in the criminal enterprise of not only uh, not only corruption of every means in the police department, but they were also robbers and burglars. And so, uh, you know, obviously most of the robberies and burglaries they committed were not timely reported by the victims to the police, and it was the police that were committing the crime. So it was a mess. But uh, in any event, they also... You know, law enforcement's got some technology. They've got uh, shot spotter technology, which are these microphones placed around cities, multiple microphones. So when a gun is fired, the microphones each get the uh, sound input and have a computer that calculates one, the three circles, and where those three circles intersect is the spot of the noise. And also they have technology which says what type of weapon's being fired. I don't know if you've ever actually seen it. But it's pretty uh, incredible. I, when I was on the street, there were the shot spotter wasn't a big deal. But in the years since, and uh, I was actually talking to an ex coworker of mine, guy I consider a buddy. And uh, while we were talking, he was working. I wasn't. I was not working in a police capacity. And um, when the shot spotter went off, he was able to show me on his police issued phone or pocket cop, whatever they call it now, and it was pretty pretty incredible. Oh, I think the technology is fascinating. Uh, Well, Maryland also has a gun center, and I'm sure most states do, where 24-7, 365, information about whether a person has gun registered to them or whether there's any reason the person is disqualified from owning a gun. That's another technology. So police have in the past responded with proactive law enforcement. They've responded with new technological uh, equipment, shot spotter and so forth, and they've They've become more administratively proficient at finding people that are not qualified to own a firearm. So it would look like our general assemblies and federal uh, government has done a good job at protecting us. But all that stuff you said was dandy. But as we're seeing, it's not stopping the shootings. As a matter of fact, the shootings are up. And when the shootings of, well, I like to say people who are uh, complicit in their own demise, when those shootings are up, then so are 
the shootings of innocent bystanders. No question. And look, uh, since 2012 in the Newtown, Connecticut massacre, 26 children and teachers, a lot of states have been tightening the rules. But the New York Times did a fascinating series in 2016. In 2015, there were 358 cases in America, almost one per day, where four or more people were shot in the same incident, so-called mass shooting. And not all, not everybody died, but there were... But their lives were changed, the ones who didn't uh, die. No, no question. Were, were changed. But, but there were 130 cases where two things intersected out of those 358. One, at least one person died, and two, the assailant was identified. So the New York Times studied those 130 cases to see what, what can we learn from these 130 cases. And in most of those cases, I'm going to make the assumption that one or more of the four victims was probably an unintended victim, meaning those are the cases where you always hear about, you know, they shot A and B drug dealer and C was the post post office worker who was walking down the street. Mm -hmm. Or the little girl who was buying ice cream. Absolutely. So here's what's a little disheartening if you are a gun control advocate. In more than half of those shootings, at least one of the assailants was already prevented by federal law from owning a weapon or possessing a weapon. So these laws did nothing to prevent them from acquiring a gun. The second is Second fact is 64% of the shootings involved a person who violated an existing gun law to acquire the gun, meaning even if they weren't uh, prohibited from having a gun, they broke the law acquiring the gun. 40%, and this is kind of scary from a public policy point of view, 40% of the 130 assailants that shot four or more people in a single incident had never had a serious run-in with the law. So there was no they weren't on anybody's radar. And this is, I'm, I know there's a big issue with you, Serge. Every time I hear about, and most recently President Biden's talking about assault weapons, I, I get so sick of hearing about assault weapons for this reason. Of the 130 incidents in 2015, only 14 involved so-called assault weapons, meaning Roughly 90% of the shootings were by handgun. And none of these laws ever seek to prevent handguns because, as you're uh, frequently reminding me, Serge, uh, the Supreme Court, I forget the case, but I think you know it, the Supreme Court uh, said the Second Amendment allows us to uh, have a gun in our home, a handgun anyway. Well, that's uh, the District of Columbia versus Heller. In the Supreme Court in 2008, struck down the D.C. law. That's that, right. Uh, people, it was five to four. But here's the thing. One thing that bothers me is all these people who spout off about the Second Amendment, if you challenge them on it, they don't even know what it says. So I like to always have it on hand, break it out. Second Amendment. And before, I guess there was a time when I thought the Second Amendment would be this long thing with a preamble and all this stuff, but it's literally only a line. I mean, a, a sentence, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's it. So one thing I always love is all these different interpretations. Well, you're pro-gun, right? Well, I used to be. Like people uh, who know uh, me wait, who wait listen minute, to this. Are you, are you <laughs> telling me, Serge, since I've known you, you've been pro-gun? Well, I used to be. Okay. And, and here's the thing. I'm not anti-gun. Newsflash. Well, yeah. And people who know me are going to say, what? Serge isn't pro-gun? Well, here's the thing. Since I've become a father, and you know I've been a father for almost eight years now, um, I just look at things differently. And you got to say, how can you not? So when you see all this gun violence and then this random gun violence, add to that innocent bystanders of random gun violence you say, man, do we really need more guns? Is that what we need? And the problem is with people who pick up guns, I don't care if it's the criminal, I don't care if it's the war veteran, I don't care if it's the cop. Uh, when you pick up a gun, people instantly think it qualifies them to take fate into their own hands. And to me- It, it does. Yeah, I don't no, know but, that it qualifies them. It enables well, them to, oh, okay. but it does I, no, not no, I, qualify I, I them that I was, to take fate into their own hands. No, I understand. You mean you mean qualify? You're using the word to mean that it uh, gives them uh, moral authority to moral do that. authority, and in some cases, legal authority. Right, correct. Qualifies I, them no, to I take got you. I thought because into I, their own hands. I, I did think you meant it innate. I thought you were using it to mean innate. But then, in the criminal sense, right. they feel empowered to take fate. Uh, into their own hands and it enables them, but it doesn't qualify anyone gotcha. to take fate into their own hands. Recently, there was a, a case in Colorado. I forget the town, uh, Arvada, Colorado, where a policeman was ambushed by a man with an AR 15 and killed. I remember that. It's a suburb of Denver. Right. And uh, so it's not, we're not talking about Chicago or No, it was New just, York. I think it was yeah. May or June. It was pretty recent. Yeah, but, it w but I'm saying it was a, it was a suburb of uh, Denver. Right. It wasn't a huge city. Right. Anyway, there was a, an armed, a legally armed civilian, had the right to conceal carry, who then acted courageously and took down the shooter. Good Samaritan. Good Samaritan. Steps up to... You shot a cop, and I'm going to protect the rest of us from exactly. this crazy man. So right. he does that, but in his mind, he knows he's the good guy. So then, instead of just monitoring the defendants or the or the decedent, the right. ambusher, the attacker's weapon, he picks it up in his infinite wisdom to further keep the community safe. Right. He figures he'll hang on to it, give it to the police when they arrived. But what he didn't count on was that no one knew what the shooter looked like. Right. So they showed up and there was this guy holding two guns. And in an instant, they shot and killed him. So until they investigated, they were, were uh, then able to discern who was the good guy, who was the bad guy. But it was too late. You know, Serge, that... I think that case is in part a product of anybody watching television. What do you always see? The police officer secures the weapon. It becomes critical. In fact, we were trained to do it. You know, if somebody is uh, 
for any, anything happens. A person goes unconscious in a courtroom with a gun. You know, a police officer faints. But the people the trained weapon. to do it usually have on a uniform or a badge, some indicia that they are police or security no, I, or I get it. Uh, an I, agent of the law somehow. I get it. I don't know the particulars of whether that the arriving officer, whether that was a good shoot in the sense that the firearm was pointed or that the person represented was doing something that looked threatening. But uh, look, it gets harder and harder to discern. Uh, they had this problem in Dallas when the uh, th- those states which have open carry, such as Texas, Colorado, and mm-hmm. so forth. In the Dallas shooting where the uh, officers were killed by the former military guy was in a parking garage, an elevated parking garage. And killed During a rally, if I'm not Correct. mistaken, where right. people were openly carrying rifles, right? People have rifles slung over their shoulder. Then one, one idiot goes up to a parking garage and kills five police officers. And what, part of the problem that the police had in that case was segregating the person who was the killer from all these other people walking around with, with uh, heavy weapons over yes. their shoulder. On another topic altogether, before we close out today's uh, episode, you might have seen in the news in the city of Sheffield Lake, Ohio, um, this police chief uh, put and a KKK. You're using that term loosely? Well, former police chief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess I am. Uh, he's He's gone now. Uh, he put a KKK something. Maybe what does KKK stand for? So Ku the Ku Klux are. Klan. Okay. And but I don't think he put a Ku Klux Klan insignia. I think he wrote the words Ku Klux Klan or something, and put it on the raincoat of a uh, African American police officer who wasn't there to let him find that when he came to work. Uh, he said it was a joke. Uh, I'm, I, I was doubled over laughing. It's so funny. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> a barrel yeah. of yucks. Yeah, what a what a comedian. I'm surprised this guy was a police chief. He had a, he missed his calling. Now, if you know how many uh, uh, members in this agency? Well, I called the department because I was curious because I couldn't find on their webpage. There's 14 police officers, and uh, what I said is, and I, this is true. Right now, they're hiring a part-time patrolman. You can apply to be a part-time patrolman. I even, I got to tell you something. I even like the word. Now, this is an aside, but the word patrolman is what they're advertising for. And I used to call myself a patrolman when I was a Howard County police officer because I thought it sounded cool. But patrolman's really a sexist term, you know, it, and police officer being the more appropriate term. But uh, Sheffield Lake, Ohio is looking for, quote, a part-time patrolman. Uh, right now today. So I called and said I was interested in the job and wanted to know how many uh, police officers worked there. And I was told it was 14. I could be the 14 and a half if I joined. <laughs> and uh, so I'm looking at whether I'm going to make my application or not. But in any event, uh, he's been fired. And I, I, I don't know how you idiot proof a culture. Look, I have told jokes that were stupid and fell flat. And most people have. Maybe this guy, I can't well, read his you're, heart. you're not a police chief. And- no, no, I can't read. Uh, what I'm saying is I can't read the police chief's heart. I can say that he deserves to be fired. It isn't funny, and it could hurt feelings. And this is not a retroactive thing. Not could thing. hurt feelings. It would hurt feelings. It was but intended to hurt This feelings. didn't happen 15, 20 years ago. Oh, it's, a, it's or, or, right, or even or longer. Or 30. But no, and but my point right. is. 
No, it's happening in 2021. And you have to be brain dead to think this is Absolutely. Better. So even if that's what's on your mind or in your heart, it shouldn't be on your fingertips or your tongue. Be smart. And maybe that can lead to healing. But instead, you just hide it. <laughs> I, thought it was, I thought it was incredibly dumb. Uh, incredibly dumb. The other thing, now this is not me in any way rationalized. I'm not saying here's how he could have gotten away with it. Listen up. But you almost have to laugh. A 14-member police department, I would think the police chief would know where the video camera was inside the agency, the security camera, because I think it'd be his job to review it from time to time. Mm. And anyway, they put, an, they put a sergeant uh, as acting police chief. So obviously they don't have a full chain of command, but the sergeant's now the acting police chief. And a shout out to those other officers, including the African-American officer who was the victim of this uh, idiocracy. I got to imagine he's the sole African-American. Well, I don't know whether he (laughs) is or not, but uh, Godspeed to that officer. And I'm sorry that it happened to you, but uh, it's in the news. And we thought we'd make mention of it because our title, of course, black and white and thin blue lines. And we talk about frequently talk about the intersection of race and criminal justice. And this is a particularly egregious example of a police chief uh, acting in a totally inappropriate way in Sheffield Lake, Ohio. And you got to think before we go, you got to think that if in his 30-year career, he had a 30-year career, if now at the end of it he would treat an African-American police officer this way, what has he done to the civilian's suspect or victim in his travels? I think that's a valid point. Um I guess you don't become a racist overnight, and you don't become a non-racist overnight, and uh, awful. Well, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you, or I'm sorry, we'll talk uh, to you in about two weeks. One quick update about our program, Black and White and Thin Blue Lines. Following our 10th episode, we're going to start with uh, guests. Not every episode, but some episodes will include guests. And if you know of anybody who would enjoy being a guest, please let us know. You can contact us at blackandwhiteandthinbluelines.com and email us from there. Or you can uh, contact either of us if you know us. And we have a few people lined up already, and we're excited about the new, uh, the new part of the podcast. Please be safe and carry on. Thank you. This podcast is the copyrighted property of Black and White and Thin Blue Lines Incorporated, a Maryland corporation. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the written permission of the owner is prohibited. For more information, we invite you to visit the website blackandwhiteandthinbluelines.com. All of the words in the URL address use common spelling and are typed together with no spaces. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and we welcome your remarks through email. The email addresses of the co-creators Serge Antonin and Clark Ollers may be found on the website.